Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sabah al-khair. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine Remembered with Robert Martin, Nasser Mashni and Yusuf Ahmed al-Rimawi. Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, gentlemen. Nasser and Robert. Morning. Good morning. Um, today we have an uh, important uh, interview with uh, Miko Pellid. Nasser, tell us about our guest. Yeah, Miko is an Israeli-American activist, author and karate instructor. He's the author of two books, The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. We also have a couple of updates, one from Syria and another one, an event, an important event in Melbourne. So stay with us and we will be back shortly with our interview with Miko Pellid. Thanks again for joining us, Miko. It's a real pleasure to have you live from Palestine. Pleasure to be with you, gentlemen. Fantastic. Now, Miko, if we could start off, we were speaking earlier about the nation-state bill that just got passed in the Knesset. Uh, can you tell yes. us your thoughts and uh, uh, on it in the first place? Well, I think the nation-state bill is um, is a, uh, a a very natural progression of the state of Israel. I mean, the the they didn't need a, a nation-state bill because the racism was already enshrined. But they wanted to make sure that none of the laws um, that were in existence already that uh, discriminate against the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, can be challenged in court. And so Netanyahu decided he wanted this nation-state bill as a, as a basic law, which is a constitutional law. It gives it constitutional um, status, and so then it can't really be challenged. And so you already had, you know, all the cities and towns built for Jews here all over the countries have been, been built for Jews and excluded Palestinians. Um, or any other, I mean, or any other, non, you know, they call them non-Jews, but of course we're talking about Palestinians. And um, and now he wanted this enshrined in a basic uh, law so that none of this could be challenged because from time to time, Palestinians did try to go into a town or to a city and, and buy a home and were prevented and they would go to court. They'd usually lose. I think, I think except for one case where they didn't lose. Um, so now it's, it's, it's enshrined. And also what it does is it, it makes it clear that this uh, includes, all the laws include Jerusalem, the entire city of Jerusalem, which of course has been occupied by Israel since 1948 illegally in, 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 uh, in violation of international law and United Nations resolutions, and basically all the towns and cities that Israel built in what used to be the West Bank. So everything from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean is Israel 
this law pertains to all the towns and cities everywhere. And um, in a way, it exhibits a great sense of insecurity by Israel because, you know, Palestinians have been living here much longer than any Israelis, and they don't need a nation-state law. And they don't need a law that says that their language is somehow superior to the other languages. Um, and so I think it, it exhibits a great deal of insecurity by Israel as well. But they needed this to say, okay, this is all ours. It's only ours. No one else is welcome. Um, and, um, and everybody else, all Palestinians who ever tried or thought that they could be part of this, and particularly the citizens of Israel, this is telling them that they have no room here. There's, not, this, there's nothing there for them here. Mm. Uh, Miko, I want to ask you about uh, the, the, the form of opposition from inside the Israeli society to this nation bill. Um, could you please help us understand who opposes this uh, national bill from the civil society inside Israel. But also, um, Miko, if you can comment also on the fact that the Druze have, might have finally woken up to the fact that they're not first-class citizens. Yes, well, you see, that's the, 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 this is very interesting. There are, several, there are several groups here that are not happy about this law. Um, that within, within the state of Israel, you know, the, the, the law didn't pass with a great majority. Uh, 62 or 66 or something, I can check. But it didn't. It didn't pass with a great majority. Just, just, a, just the majority that it needed to pass as a basic law. And most of the opposition to this that's coming from within Israeli society, um, they have they, they oppose this law mostly for because of public relations issues. Yes, it was 60. It was passed 62 to 55 with two absentees, abstentions. They oppose it for, for uh, cosmetic reasons, for public relations reasons, because it shows Israel in, in, in a negative light. The laws that existed and were passed by the Israeli Knesset since the establishment of the state of Israel over the last seven decades have all been racist laws hmm. that have, in fact, made Israel an apartheid state. The citizenship laws, the land laws, particularly the return law, that allows Jews from anywhere to come and immigrate and they're considered returning as opposed to Palestinians who are prohibited from returning even though they still have the key to their home in this country. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that over 95% of the land can only be sold or leased to Jews. This assumption, this law that says that the entire country belongs to the Jews. Um, all of these have already, and, and of course, who's a citizen and what are citizen rights for Jews and what are citizen rights for the non-Jews. So it's already been an apartheid state, and, and there's been very little opposition to any of that. You know, not to mention the murder of people in Gaza, the, the executions of Palestinians everywhere, the, the horrible conditions the Palestinians live in within the boundaries of um, what they call Israel, you know, uh, or occupied Palestine. So all this was in existence. That didn't really bother them because these, passed, these laws were passed by both right, left, and center governments. Um, now this is bothering them. Israeli society, because, you know, for cosmetic reasons, it, it, it enshrines the apartheid regime. So nothing's it, it changed. enshrines the racism. Now, in terms of the minority communities like the, the Palestinian Druze, in 1948, while the, the, the true leadership of the Druze community opposed collaborating, Israel always finds corrupt leaders to collaborate with it. And there was a deal made, and they serve in the military, although today about half or more, maybe even more than half refuse to serve in the military. They do serve in the military. 
they get nothing, very little for it. In other words, their towns are just as uh, deprived and their life is just as, they live as second-class citizens pretty much like other Palestinians who are citizens of the state or non-Jews or citizens of the state. However... This is a very important now, point. I want you to elaborate more on it, uh, Miko. The, well, never, never, you, never, you know, yeah, are, despite, despite the fact that these Druze do serve in the army and die for the country, but uh, they are still viewed as the other when it comes... Of course they are, because mm. this is a racist state. Mm. This is a racist state. And so if you're not Jewish, you are the other. And if you are an Arab and you're dark-skinned, then, you are, uh, then you're not one of us. I just so want to remind our listeners... A militia. I just want to They're remind our listeners too, though, Miko, that you are actually an Israeli Jew who is speaking out like this. So if anyone has any yeah, misconceptions, yeah, I mean, yeah. you were raised in this environment and chose to seek out and see the truth. So these hard truths coming are from someone that knows from both sides. And I remember you telling me something when I was with you, Miko, that there was a Druze that was part of the IDF of demolishing someone's house. And they got home and found that their own house had been demolished. And it truly showed that the Druze are non-Jews and get treated like all of the others. So non-Jews. They're Palestinians. I mean, they're Palestinians like any, except their religion is slightly... Their, their, their version of Islam is slightly different. So... So, so, you know, so, so they have never been part of Israeli society. Even in the military, they have their own, you know, they're segregated. They're segregated everywhere because they're not Israelis. And they, you know, they're, they're, it's like a militia, you know, they're basically, they're basically hired guns. And so, so when they go home with the uniform and the gun and, and you know, they have a nice salary because some of them are officers, you know, it's, it's, it's a form of, uh, of status. But really, in terms of their towns, their life, their, their in- inclusion into, into society, they're Arabs. They're just like Arabs, in other words, which is, which is to, you know, which is as low as you can be on the totem pole socially and economically and so forth and politically. So they have no voice. So now this has been told to them in no uncertain terms. Not only has this reality been just the reality, now it's enshrined. In the Constitution. Constitutionally. Constitutionally. And they're standing up and saying, how can you do this to us? How can you do this to us? And my point is, and this is a point that I make to my friends who are Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, that um, trying to collaborate with the oppressor, trying to collaborate with the occupier never works. Never works. It only helps the occupier and the oppressor uh, do their job more efficiently. That's it. You know, they say if it wasn't for the, and I know this is something harsh to say, but it's true. If it wasn't for the collaboration of Jews all over Europe, the Nazis could never have killed so many people. And I don't mean collaboration in that they, they were Nazis. I mean, they were trying, every time there, another law passes, another law passes, another law passes, you know, there's enough people within the leadership of the community to say, you know what, let's just listen to them and let's work with them. And then, you know, that will guarantee that we can keep living. And then there's another regulation, another law. And before you know it, you know, Jews are being, are being, are being exterminated. So in other mm. words, no occupation, no oppression can work without some cooperation from within the oppressed community. This is, this is historically the reality. And, mm. and we've learned this lesson one more time, and they see this lesson one more time, with all their cooperation and their sincere efforts to work within the system, they have just been spat out yeah, by yeah. the system. Uh, Uncle Tom's, we, they used to get called, you know, and there's another uh, a house N-word. Yeah. 
Now, now, uh, Miko, before we move on to the next question, Robert wants to uh, take you to another dimension. I want, in line of your answer, still ask you about the Bedouin uh, Arabs, who also, some of them or a minority of them, do serve in the army. But nevertheless, they are the most marginalized in the Israeli society, especially the unrecognized villages. Do you want to elaborate on that? Well, yes, exactly. I mean, they. I think they're, they uh, serve even less today than, uh, than the Druze community. Um, and they have been completely disenfranchised. You have close to 100,000 who live in, in towns. These are not, you know, these are towns uh, with, with tens of thousands of people who predate the state of Israel and refuse to be relocated by the state of Israel, so they get no services. So they have entire towns with no access, with no roads. And so if you need an ambulance, there's no way to get an ambulance. If you have a medical emergency, there's no electricity, there is no running water, they have to walk out miles to buy water. And Robert, I'm sure you remember, we visited a couple of those towns. And they have to go out and they yeah. buy water at, at, at exorbitant prices while Jewish settlements all around them, and this is the Nekab Desert, mind you, mm. the Jewish settlements all around them are green and flourishing and doing very, very well. There's, high un- there's enormously high unemployment uh, and so forth, and they are completely excluded from the services of the state. We're talking about education, again, uh, medical care, access to emergency care, and so forth. They've been denied. We're talking, again, this is 100,000. And the other 100,000 or so in the Nakab Desert who just live in towns that Israel created, again, the vast majority of them have been relocated from their natural uh, land to these uh, slums. And they are, again, there's no, they're, they're prohibited from, from agriculture, even though they are farmers. They are, agriculture was their main source of income. So there's high unemployment, terrible poverty. They're excluded from society. And some of them do serve still, although I think much less than before, and they get very little for it. I mean, they get no recognition and they will not be ever become a part of Israeli society. And so, and there's also a process of taking away their citizenship now. Mm, Um, So, I mean, all of this is happening at the same time. This should come as no surprise to anyone. Um, And all the protests, I feel, are, are... going in the wrong direction because protesting this is not the point what needs to be done now is to recognize that palestinians uh need to reunite as a nation the palestinians who are this who live as israeli citizens the palestinians and who live in what used to be the west bank and the gaza strip in the diaspora and the refugee camps it's time to reunite and demand demand that the state of Israel be replaced with a democracy with equal rights and demand equal rights, demand equal access to resources, demand the right of return. This, this, this project failed miserably. It is violent. It is racist. And it has to be overturned. And now Palestinians have the capacity and have an opportunity to unite because Israel just told even the ones that are citizens that they're actually not citizens. Excellent. So it's an opportunity to unite and make these new demands, not to protest and expect the state of Israel to change. Yeah. Now, Miko, um, the, the reality, and you spoke about the, um, the vote being 62 to 55 with a couple of abstentions, and the concern with uh, those in the Knesset that voted against it wasn't with the intent of the law, but with the public relations uh, uh, issue that it presents itself when they market brand Israel and, you know, when Benjamin Netanyahu was in Australia, Malcolm Turnbull said, you know, Australia is like um, like Israel. The United States says Israel is our best friend. The reality is that many more Jews 
increasingly, whether they're jumping off birthright buses or they're joining Code Pink or uh, Ariel Gold and the other uh, Jewish people of good conscience like yourself, Miko, are, are moving away, moving away from the idea that the State of Israel is uh, the bastion and light unto nations. It's a beacon. A beacon. What, what, what are your thoughts on, on worldwide Jewry and what they should be doing now? Well, I think Jewish people, just like all people of conscience, are uh, are are bound by you know to 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 follow their conscience and to follow their values. And I think that uh, opposing the state of Israel, if you oppose racism, then opposing the state of Israel is what you should do. Um, whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew, and the fact that now some more Jews who used to support the state of Israel are opposing. Uh, again, I don't see the opposition as being opposing the state, but more of like you know lightweight opposition to um, opposition to certain policies or again opposition to this particular law um, I don't think it's enough but there are Jews and there always have been Jewish people Jewish communities who oppose the state of Israel rejected the state of Israel whether actively or passively and I think all people again whether they're Jews or non-Jews need to do everything they can to oppose the existence of the state of Israel because it's not that the state of Israel is committing <coughs> Crimes and crimes. It's not that the state of Israel is violating international law. The state of Israel is a crime. The existence of the state of Israel is a violation uh, of international law and the rights of, 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 of people in Palestine. So I think that has to be the context. And again, protesting a certain policy or a certain law is not enough because the state of Israel is a racist entity and that's how it's going to be. It's not going to change. It's strong enough to remain... And as long as it remains, it will continue to be like this. The opposition needs to be to the very existence of this state in Israel. Now, Miko, if you could briefly comment on this point before we move on to the next topic. Um, you live uh, between Palestine and the United States, and uh, you probably are close to um, observing uh, the voices of young generations of the Jewish uh, Americans. Is there a, a bit of a shift within the American Jewry when it comes to their position or automatic unconditional support historically to the state of Israel? Well, um, the, the, the large communities, the large synagogues and so forth are still um, you know, largely support the state of Israel. And uh, you see some opposition within these communities against, uh, or, or you see some, they, they're beginning to vocalize some sense of, uh, of, of opposition to certain policies within. Um, but I don't think it's at a point yet where it's significant at all. I mean, you see some young people, you know, rebelling, doing this, that, or the other. But I don't see, I don't see anything that's significant enough to point to and say, well, there I is see. a major shift. One, one day we will. So, Miko, something on something that's really close to you is the uh, Tamimi family, and uh, you know, Ahed and her mother got out of prison. And I know that you spent some time with the family recently. How was that? How was she? How was dad? How was mum? How was the village welcoming her? Tell me about you know what that felt like. The release of, of Nariman and Ahed, you know, the mother and daughter, of course, is a wonderful thing. It's an important event, and it was it was it was you know massively significant, and and it was a great um, it was a great day and very festive. Although the Israeli authorities tried to ruin it, uh, you know, they 
should, they were supposed to be released at one checkpoint. So, you know, we went there and then they said, no, it's going to be a different checkpoint. And they said, no, it's going to be that. So everybody was like spread all over the place and there was confusion. <clears throat> and then they closed the gate to the village. So there was no access to the village after that. Uh, so they tried to make the celebration, to ruin the celebration as well. But at the end of the day, they were released and it was very festive and uh, there's a lot of media attention and so forth. And Nariman, his mother said something wonderful. She said, you know, all Palestinian children are Ahed Tamimi because yeah. there's so many, there are hundreds of Palestinian children still in Israeli jails. And so it's a celebration, but it's also a reminder, you know, as you walk around Abi Saleh, there's a boy who was released from prison a few months ago after uh, he became blind as a result of um, uh, medical negligence. Uh, another boy who was shot in the head, and Robert, you may recall, we saw him as well, and now he is... Um, Such a small little kid. Uh, I'll never forget him. Yeah, and now his head is completely deformed, yeah. and, uh, and, on and on and on and on, and of course all the kids were still, were still uh, in prison. So this is, this, is, this is a very difficult reality, and it's hard to celebrate within it, although we need to, and now... Um, and now we need to, and now we need to um, uh, focus on the greater picture here. We can't forget the greater picture here. There has to be a recognition that the situation is severe and uh, and move on and to act. fight. I just, just got to say that, uh, look, before the show, Yusuf and I were at a restaurant and we had a slight uh, argument with a uh, an Israeli Jew who overheard Yusuf and I talking. And one thing I brought up was that, uh, you know, you had written a book, The General's Son, and it woke me up because he was believing all the propaganda that you were fed. And so for all of our listeners, Nasser's going to ask about Miko's second book. But I just want to put out there that The General's Son was one of the books that sort of shook my cage. I know I was around a lot of Palestinians, and your first book was really quite daunting to me that you had been basically given one story and believed it until you drove to meet some Palestinians. Uh, so please, all the listeners go out um, and, and buy The General Sun. It was a fantastic book, so congratulations. And I'll pass you over to Nasser about uh, your second book because you now are a very big author, Miko. Yeah. Well, not anybody can just publish one book. Having one pu- book published on uh, Palestine is an effort in itself to, to publish a second. Well done, Miko. So the new book is Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land, Fa- Holy Land Foundation, five. Now... Um, Miko, can you take us through these five Palestinians and the challenge that what they tried to do was uh, to raise some money for Palestine and what's ended up happening for them? Well, the, um, you know, this is part of a larger picture of, the, uh, of, of, of delegitimizing everything that's Palestinian in the West. Everything that's Palestinian has to be somehow connected to terrorism. And so whether it's culturally, whether it's politically, whether it's um, any, any, anything that has this Palestinian has to be somehow connected to terrorism. And there was one area that was somehow spared this for a while, and that was, and that was uh, relief, relief organizations and charity. Um, so um, the Holy Land Foundation was a uh, fast-growing, uh, honest, reliable uh, charity, relief organization. Um, and then uh, the, you know, the different tentacles of the Zionist lobby, the Israeli lobby, the Anti-Defamation League and others were beginning to worry because their success and because their reputation, which was stellar, was changing the narrative. In other words, even though they did not deal with politics, they were showing a side of this reality that the Israel, Israel doesn't want people to see. 
the Palestinians as victims and not victims because of their own doing, but victims of, because of neglect by the authority, which is the state of Israel, which is supposed to take care of its people, even if they are occupied, even if they are Arabs. So in the, in the, in the early to mid-1990s, they began uh, spreading rumors that Holy Land Foundation is supporting terrorism, that they then, when uh, in the mid-90s, when Hamas became recognized as a terrorist organization in the United States, designated as a terrorist organization, um, it was claimed that they're, that they're sending uh, funneling money to Hamas and on and on. And then after 9-11, they were targeted immediately and closed down and uh, their assets were frozen. Your bookmaker, you, you detail the, the travesty of justice with respect to their, their two trials um, to a, a, um, an Israeli... Uh, agent called Avi, who didn't have to disclose his identity or his uh, credentials to the judge um, uh, issuing the, the sentence. Maybe take us in a couple of minutes because we're running out of time, Miko, just through to the end. Well, they, they, they had two trials. Uh, one trial ended in a, in a, in a, in a, as a mistrial because the jury was hung. And the second trial, there was a different judge and the judge allowed a great deal of evidence that had no, no place in, in a courtroom that was completely irrelevant. And in both trials, there was an unprecedented um, issue, which was allowing anonymous foreign agents to testify as expert witnesses, which is, which is unconstitutional. It, it, it goes against the Constitution, contravenes the, the U.S. Constitution. And so, but they were allowed to, to respond. Uh, and even though, and you'll see this in the book, in, in Injustice, because I put some of the transcripts from the trial in there, you will see that the defense attorneys really tear them apart. And they have no proof whatsoever. They can not demonstrate in any way, shape, or form that the money sent by Holy Land Foundation actually went to Hamas. So their claims, even as anonymous experts, were, were very easily dismissed by the defense attorneys. But you have to remember, this was in the, in the Northern District of Texas. You, um, you had the entire weight of the, of the U.S. government uh, against them. And these are five Muslim men. Their wives wear hijab, you know, traditional Muslim uh, clothes. They show up in a courtroom, and they're already guilty. So they were all found, the second trial, they were all found guilty. Two got 15 years in federal prison. One got 20 years, and two got 65 years. Uh, the appeals courts denied their appeals. The Supreme Court wouldn't take their case, and Barack Obama would not um, commute their sentence, even though there was a there was a deal ready for him to sign where he could commute their sentences and, and deport them, but he wouldn't do it. So we have five very good men in in federal prison um, serving hard time yeah. for no reason other than the fact that they are Palestinian Muslims. So again, the book is Injustice: The Story of the Holy Land Foundation Five. Miko, thanks so very much for joining us from Palestine. It's been a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you. Again, that was Miko Pellet uh, live from Palestine. Uh, I believe, Nasser, uh, you have uh, something to share with us. Yes, indeed. We've got um, Military Court Watch, Jared Horton and Salwa Dubais, who are coming here from Palestine. We're doing a national tour to talk about um, Israeli apartheid, but uh, as well as that, the de- illegal detention of children in Israeli jails, the 99% conviction rate, the, the taking of children as young as 10 years old in the middle of the night, questioned in a foreign language without representation, without their parents forced to sign confessions, 
um, and jail terms of, you know, six months to two years, exactly what happened to Ahad, but to even younger children. Mm. They're doing a national tour. Um, so if you go to apan.org.au, you can find out details nationally if you listen to us around Australia. And those listeners in Melbourne on the 21st of August, Tuesday the 21st of August, um, they're uh, pr- uh, delivering their presentation in Melbourne, 21st of August. Remind us of their names. This is uh, Jared Horton and Salwa Dubois. They did, they did a wonderful thing on 60 Minutes, so please, Correct. people come. There's there's not many people, Australian people, that have seen it firsthand and lived it. It's a phenomenal well, thing for them Jared's to Jared's actually an Australian barrister that gave yeah. up a thriving practice to go defend Palestinian children in Israeli courts. And chose to stay. Yeah, yeah. And John Lyons and Jared did a documentary called Stone Cold Justice on the ABC. It was on Four Corners. So if you Google Stone Cold Justice ABC, Jared Horton and John Lyons, you'll be able to see that uh, documentary. I was speaking to a friend of mine in Jerusalem, Abir Zayed, a Palestinian uh, advocate, and she told me that uh, she told me that Palestinian children in Jerusalem, as young as six years old, get arrested sometimes. One of them was arrested for disturbing a Jewish settler because he was playing in his bicycle mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. Uh, and Im- imagine, imagine what the 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 sick system that arrests uh, a six-year-old boy. Of course, and they detained a three-year-old in Khalil, in Hebron. And Yusuf, you've got an update for us from Yarmouk. Uh, a very sad update, uh, Nasser. Uh, the uh, residents of Yarmouk and the neighboring uh, areas in South Damascus, that is uh, Yelda, Saham, Al-Hajar Al-Aswad, and Asbene. Uh, we're talking about uh, 750 uh, families uh, were forcibly sent to the northern part of uh, Syria after the destruction of Yarmouk camp and the neighboring uh, areas in south uh, Damascus. Now add to the 750 uh, families two more uh, um, two, uh, two more hundreds from uh, the area of Dar'a. So we're talking about nearly 1,000 Palestinian families are stranded in makeshift desert camps. And these people are the grandsons of the people who were driven out of Palestine in 1948. So the Nakba is not a one-off event that mm-hmm. happened 70 years ago and ended. This is what it means uh, to be in a living and ongoing uh, Nakba. We will cover this uh, with more details next uh, episode. Um, that's it, uh, Nasser and Robert. We've come to the end of another edition of Palestine Remembered. Uh, next week, we'll talk about uh, the issue of uh, Yarmouk families and more. So stay with us, and until we meet, uh, this is Yusuf Nasser and Robert wishing you the best of time and salam.